coverage of the transgender bathroom debates. A discussion of potential vice presidential picks. This is Jared Ingalls. And this is Caleb Wheat. And this is Ingalls Wheat 2016. This past week, the debate over transgender restrooms and the right of transgender individuals to use the restroom of their choice received an additional uh, boost from the Obama administration. The Obama administration intervened in two specific ways. and It first just intervened to side with the University of North Carolina over the transgender law House Bill 2 that was recently passed through North Carolina. And then the Obama administration did something that I didn't expect them to do, and I don't think many people expected them to do. Um, they issued a directive to public schools ordering all public schools in the United States to allow um, students to go to the bathroom of their gender identification, of the, of what, of the gender that they identify with. So, quick groundwork for those of you who may not know uh, how this happened. So, first off, I, it is not, I want to go ahead and give a clear for me too. I, it is not entirely clear to me what uh, caused this to become an issue, and it is not clear to me exactly what the, de- what the issue is yet. I don't, under, I don't know how it is being defined, and I don't know what the problem is that, is being, that, is, uh, that people are trying to address. Right. The one thing that I will say that I know for sure is that I blame the, the raising this uh, issue to a national profile on the state of North Carolina. The mm-hmm. Republican Party in North Carolina was stupid enough to pass <laughs> House Bill 2. Now, now, I'm not saying that I, I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with the bill itself. I'm just saying I doubt that the federal government would have gotten involved or that this would have become a major national issue. And I bet that people in North Carolina, if their goal was for children and for people in North Carolina to continue going to men's and women's restrooms, then why would you, then the best way to do that was to stay quiet exactly. and to say nothing. But no. The House decided to pass House Bill Number 2, which meant that you had to go to the bathroom of your sex, and that's... On your birth certificate. On your birth certificate. On your birth certificate. So that has been the... That's been the moment when, for me, this became a national issue of major importance, of urgency that drew the White House into the battle, and the White House and other issues became involved because the University of North Carolina refused to abide by the state's new law that had just passed because of a federal court decision in Virginia which said that bills much like the one that North Carolina passed actually are illegal. They're unconstitutional. Yeah. So North Carolina, the University of North Carolina was caught in this really awkward bind. And this is something that I'm aware of um, as a a person employed by higher education because we've been having this discussion at college. Why this is an issue is if you are a public funded state university, your boss is technically the state. Yes. You not 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 the, not the national not by state. I don't mean like the state, like the United right. States. I mean North Carolina. Yeah. The University your of Kentucky's state. boss is Kentucky. Exactly. Ohio State's boss is Ohio. However, more tax dollars flow into these universities from the federal government than from the state government. Does that make sense? Yes. 
So what that so what was happening is well slightly more some states is different like i think ohio state's tax base is enormous because there is not another uh state school that's really competing but for example uh there's university of north carolina there's north carolina state that kind of thing but ohio, does that make sense so maybe yes. state funding is bigger in places like ohio but it's not the case for the university of north carolina mm-hmm. but the issue is so now the university of north carolina is playing russian roulette hoping that the state of North Carolina does not, as it has threatened to do, it, because it's denying uh, the House, to slash funding for the University of North Carolina significantly. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars annually. But the federal government, at the same time, has threatened to use its cash dollars to withhold funding to any school that does not uh, allow right. people to go to the restroom based on transgender. So I don't know which bag of money is the biggest, but the <laughs> university's caught between these two possibly losing hundreds of millions of dollars of funding one way or the other. Now, I think that it is highly unlikely that the state of North, the state of North Carolina and other states have consistently threatened their university systems when they feel like the university systems are not complying or when they feel like the university is bucking mm-hmm. against uh, state directives, is which that- not surprisingly usually happens when you have a Tea Party governor or uh-huh. usually happens when you have a far-right legislature, which is what's recently happened in North Carolina. This is like the third time this year that the North Carolina, the Union of North Carolina has run, run up against uh, the North Carolina government. This right. happened last year. The biggest issue was when the Un- North Carolina legislature tried to force every professor at the University of North Carolina to teach four classes each semester, which is more than a full-time teaching load at a liberal arts college Mm -hmm. and would basically destroy the nation's 15th greatest research institution (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because no one would have time for research. Um, So that's where it all started for me was in North Carolina and then the federal government got involved uh, going forward. It has created a, I mean, the, the political atmosphere in North Carolina, I would say probably hasn't been that great for a while. But I mean, it has been. I've been. I've talked to a couple of friends that I that I have in North Carolina, and they've told me that it is just toxic. One of my friends, she also works for a college. She works for a private institution, um, but she's very close to. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure it's UNC Chapel Hill that she's close to. So I'm, it is North Carolina, you that that she is close to, unless I'm mistaken. And I mean, she said. I mean that the the whole state just feels toxic at the moment you know the the tension over right. this issue and you know you you raise the question of state funding versus federal funding and i would imagine that the federal funding is going to have a lot more to do with the student aid right i mean because that's yes. yes that's what you know asbury's concerned when when the supreme court said you know made uh homosexual marriage legal for the entire nation last summer Asbury University began to be concerned about that and wanted and started speaking about raising a massive endowment to cover any losses if they weren't to have that federal funding anymore, right? And as an aside, that entire discussion made me miserable. Oh yeah, that's that's <laughs> as a former Asbury graduate. Okay, now yeah. we're going to finally get going on this fundraising thing. Aside yeah. from the fact that our professors have been underpaid for fifteen years let's, and overworked, let's now get to raise what money. Was it, so that what we was he said? Like to. a a hundred million dollar endowment or something? That was yeah, right. A whole aside. All of that. Was idiotic, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> but 
But that's basically what North Carolina would be, you know, the university would be dealing with is this question of, you know, all of our students are getting all of this money from the federal government and we need to be able to receive this aid for our students to keep coming. Uh, but you, you're exactly right that North Carolina is the one who brought this to the forefront of the issue. My concern with President Obama uh, issuing the directive that he issued is, first of all, it's yet another example of uh, executive authority being played out right now in this very contentious political atmosphere. And I don't see an end in sight on this because no matter who gets elected um, in the next But term, this is bonkers, right? Yeah. This is bonkers. This is – I. Ugh. For me, it's just exactly what you said. For me, it is the, a gross overreach by the executive yes. threatening school districts. Yes, into in, in, an area that I think is legally vague at best as to whether or not he has the ability to issue this directive. Now, I do not... Well, he does have the ability, that's for sure. He did it. But the issue is it's, he has well, made see, it clear no, that, not, that, that it's... He's made it clear that it's not legally binding. He can't right. hold anyone to this legally, but he can use federal funding to manipulate school districts, exactly. which is where we get even to weirder. This, that's, is, that's this is what the problem is. For me. This is what the problem is for me. The executive, and this is this has been in, in a this has been coming since Ronald Reagan, but the executive has garnered way too much authority for my comfort. Uh, and I know that there, the Supreme Court is supposedly hearing arguments this term about. The President Obama's executive orders regarding immigration, which are executive orders that I agree with, but at the same time are just executive orders that you know bear the full force of law. And so here he is here where he says that he can't force anyone to, to follow this, right? He says that, but then he uses fun and use it. But what, what stops him from writing an executive order, right? And what is the question of power here? Where's the authority? How are we gonna How are we gonna fix this? How are we gonna get get past the fact that the executive, to get anything done, is having to issue executive orders without the oversight or the checks and balances of the other systems of government? And if this is what's gonna happen, and if this is what's gonna develop the issue of uh, gender neutral bathrooms, then I don't see any way that this doesn't end up in the Supreme Court. Oh right, for sure. I'm sure that will go to the Supreme Court. It's already it's already being heard in multiple federal courts, outside of uh, the Supreme Court. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out: the immigration executive orders are more within the bounds of the president. So technically, obviously, it'd be much better if the president could work this out with Congress uh, and pass it by legislation and make mm-hmm. it by law. But uh, I'm. Even though I still believe this is the executive order was an overreach of executive power to some degree with the immigration order, mm-hmm. immigration is a federal issue, right? Right? Your nation, it's a, it's it's something that the federal government is in charge of regulating and figuring out, right? School districts have traditionally been one of the few areas of government that are left most up to local school districts, the yes. way that how much funding goes into schools. Uh, how much? How many teach, teach? How many students do you want in a teacher's classroom? The kind of curriculum that you want in the classroom. There's some wiggle room at the local level. Increasingly, less and less wiggle mm-hmm. room with no child left behind. First by President Bush, which empowered the Department of Education right. beyond any capacity that he had oh, occupied uh, ever before. And then the implementation of right. And then the implementation of Common Core Education, mm-hmm. which uh, is 
a way of standardizing education nationwide. So there are these moves by the federal government to take over more control of school districts, uh-huh. but they're still relatively autonomous. And to make this... Right. And the other thing that I wanted to say about this, and this is not really substantive and probably meaningful, and this sounds like I'm just being a strategist, <laughs> I'm sure that Hillary Clinton was like face palming all day <laughs> every time some other statement was released by someone else in the Obama administration. Like, why are you doing this now? Like, you could have just held off yes. six months left in office. Don't make it harder for me to get to the White House than it already is. Stop firing up the right. Stop firing up the Republican base. Now, from a strategy perspective, I have no idea why the Obama White House is deciding to take a stand on this right now, mm-hmm. because unless he's just wondering what he he doesn't he feels like he needs to do this before he leaves office. But typically, I would just let this lie calm. Let Hillary do this if, any, if anyone was going to do this when she becomes president, instead of making yeah. it harder for her to get there. Yeah, I, I just don't you, see a strategy in doing this. In May. You're exactly right, and you pointed out the exact same thing with the Republicans in North Carolina, right? You know why? Did you have to right. say something? Because if you didn't say anything, then the attention would have been kept off of you, right? And it just it makes no strategic sense on any side on how this issue is being handled. This is one of those issues to me, Jared, that because the law does not necessarily... I don't know if the law... I don't know if there's a House Bill 2 version in other, on other state books... I mean, just by the way that our country has worked, I'm sure there's probably some obscure laws out there that have regulations Caleb, about... I want to tell you that there's probably one coming from Matt Bevan. Oh, oh I'm <laughs> sure there surprise. is. I'm sure there is. <laughs> but it's, it's just, it seems like this is one of those things that could have been handled so much more discreetly because I'm like you. I don't know exactly what made it come up, Right. I don't know what made the topic. I don't have any idea. <laughs> I mean, I didn't who, know there was this overwhelming problem. Right? Who talked about this first? <laughs> and, right, because. And I, I, I just, mean, I guess in, I think of other like social democracies, like Britain, France, Germany, uh-huh. places where I've been. It didn't seem like this was an issue in other places I went in. It just seemed like there was a general... Mm-hmm. In France, there was a general agreement that there are no such things as men's and women's restrooms, really. Right. There were sort of, but you would just... Everyone had... They had stalls where the door went to the floor, mm-hmm. and you just walk into the bathroom and... Which is an update ev- that America needs, by the way. And... Absolutely. They need- Why in the world can we build cars and men to the moon? We can... You know, <laughs> Cure almost cure cancer, but we can't figure out how to make people be enable people to have a, use the bathroom in private when they're in public. <laughs> Not at all. We cannot build an, an appropriately sized stall door because it doesn't go as high as it well it goes as high as it needs to go. It doesn't go as low as it needs to go, and they don't go as wide as they need to go. Why There's do there crap. have to be such gaps between the frame and the door? I don't Why understand. Why not just make a door? The size of the <laughs> England seems to have gotten this. France got the memo. I don't know why we haven't caught up. And if one of the things that people are most afraid of are people looking at women under stalls, like men creeping into women's restrooms, which I don't think that that is actually a legitimate fear in any kind of way, why don't we just 
become an actual civilized nation instead of uh, doing our business basically in public with a see-through door why don't we just create actual doors and all of a sudden that fear goes away <laughs> floor all the way to the door the bathrooms at the U of R are appalling See? they're not just like the metal door the yeah. ones in the English department they are not tall enough they are definitely not far enough down when you are sitting down at, in the bathroom at the U of R yeah. it is clear that if anyone so much as slightly turned they do, it's, it, it's like up to here it's past your knees it's way up past your knees what? it's like a two foot gap from the bottom to the top it's the See? weirdest doors I've ever seen this and this is something like you said. We'd need to just become a civilized country. This seems to me like a problem that we could easily fix, and that could have been handled very quietly. Where to me, why didn't all these businesses and all these people just send out a memo? Surely we have a system for this, right? That we can just send out a memo, and everyone just say, "Hey, guess what? We're gonna make our bathrooms, you know, individual. We're gonna do something to just make this." Fixed. We won't. We're not going to have to pass any laws. We're not going to take take it to court. We're not going to have to deal with any of this garbage and nonsense. And we're not going to have to once again put up with the fact that the left and the right are never going to see eye to eye on this issue because it has. Oh, I'm not even going to go there. And just deal with it. This is what astounds me. Why can't we just deal with this problem and go home? One of the things that I've seen some places up here do is the the family restroom. Yeah. It's just been converted into an all-gender bathroom. Mm-hmm. And there's have... a men's and women's restroom that's still separate, um, which seems like a quick fix. Uh, yeah. We have we have gender-neutral bathrooms at my church. We always have. There are these two upstairs, and you know what? They are one stall and one sink, and the door locks. And it, it, yeah, it, That's it, my, pre- my preference. Instead of having, like, in a public restroom, instead of having, like, five stalls and three urinals would just be to have eight private bathrooms. Exactly. And can't that be done easily? Like, surely that's an easy thing to do. It's it's probably more expensive. But it can't be that much more expensive. You have to have a sink for every single single stall. The sink doesn't have to be private. Just the stall does. Well, basically, then that's France's system. France just has, like, individual toilets with doors to the floor so it's basically being in your own little tiny room after going into the larger restroom area exactly there's Walk like a into larger the larger restroom, restroom, restroom sinks area. along the wall right yeah and then have one whole wall just doors that lead to you know it looks like individual a big restroom yes yes and then you that come out like and you a use a sink <laughs> yes <laughs> Sounds like an excellent solution to solve everybody's problems. And my question is, do we need the greatest legal minds in at least our country to be the ones to tell us to do that? I don't think they're going to tell us to do that. I think they're going to be debating uh, this issue for a long time <laughs> about the legality of My thing is... is Okay, so there are studies that have been done that show that allowing transgender restrooms, like allowing people who are mm-hmm. transgender to go to the bathroom of their choice, it reduces uh, violence towards transgender individuals. And it has actually been shown that mixed gender bathrooms, like if it's an actual bath, if you just abolish men's and women's restrooms and just have restrooms, mm-hmm. that it reduces in public schools the amount of bullying because guys are less likely to bully other guys if there are girls around. 
Mm. And girls are less likely to be super mean to other girls in the bathroom because they want to look like the facade or like the kind person that they put on when they're outside of the restroom. So there have also been those studies that have been done. And I don't know, I wasn't, it was a bit odd at first when we were in Europe, some of these bathrooms, but it was fine. Like it was not. Yeah. You, you overcame. We yeah. overcame rapidly. Yeah. I was more concerned in England. The worst for me, I would much rather go back to the joint gender restroom rather than going in England into the bathroom and instead of having urinals or stalls, just having the open trough system, which is my oh. least favorite system. Oh, my <laughs> God. Neyland Stadium at Tennessee still has the trough in the men's restroom. Tro- of- what? And, and Oh, yeah, and, at Neyland Stadium. And, like, there are some people who... Some have made suggestions that, you know, to get rid of the trough. And there are some people in Tennessee who, like, would be very upset about that because they think it's part of the tradition, which I think is Part of the tradition. Well, basically what you all who are listening are learning here is that Caleb and I are not highly invested in the the issue that is being debated, but we are highly invested in restroom reform. We are very invested. We have a lot of problems with the state of restrooms in this country. It is a crime for the way that all of us have to expose ourselves publicly. Every time we have to go to the bathroom outside of our own homes, it is a disgrace. And it is my right to privacy as a U.S. citizen to be able to do my business actually in private wherever I need to. Amen. I can't think of a better way to end our first segment. Stick with us. When we come back, we'll be talking about Donald Trump's potential vice presidential selections. For our second segment, we are going to look at some of the potential vice presidential picks for Donald Trump because that is obviously... Um, what everyone is focused on, that's what all that's what everyone is talking about at this stage of the race, as we know that Donald Trump will be taking the Republican nomination. And it is um, there have, as far as I know, I have not seen anyone uh, or I have not seen or heard anything from Donald Trump or Donald Trump's camp that give a very specific, um, that give any kind of a actual official clue as to who he's leaning towards, um, because I guess one of the main one of the questions you have to answer is you know what timeline is he going to pick? Um, because if I'm thinking strategically, he said soon. Yeah, if I'm thinking, yeah, he, str- he's recently announced soon. Mm-hmm. If I'm thinking strategically, I would wait until the Democratic primary is completely over, because if I'm Donald Trump. I want every single news cycle that I can possibly have to be about Hillary versus Bernie and how Donald Trump gets to comment on Hillary versus Bernie. And the moment okay, he announces so the moment he announces a vice presidential pick, then there are going to be some news cycles that are focused entirely upon his ticket, which I know you think sounds like that's obviously the better option. But right now Donald Trump has, Donald Trump has won his nomination. And he's busy, you know, kind of consolidating support. And so his primary focus, I think, needs to be maintaining the news cycle that is continuing to damage Hillary Clinton's image, as it has from the beginning of the election. Not so much so that I think that he will win, but I think that's the best strategy for him at this moment. I don't know if that's what he's going to do or not. 
Well, the, uh, here's what I'm thinking. This is what I'm thinking is going through the head of the Donald Trump team. Right now, there. first, if you ascribe to the belief that all pre- no press is bad press, then he's doing mm-hmm. great. But right. if you ascribe to the belief that you need to start fundraising now, you can't wait for four more weeks, five more weeks to start fundraising, three weeks to start fundraising big time, and you need to start uniting the party, and you need yeah. to start getting some direction, that's why I think there might be some urgency behind him getting a VP pick, is to give a kind of uh, validity to his campaign uh, in Republican circles who are nervous about providing funding. Does that make sense? Yes. So if they are wanting to start gearing up the fundraising team, if they want to go ahead and not and go ahead and start laying the groundwork for the general election, if they want the news cycles to stop being Republican Party skeptical about Donald Trump and people like Lindsey right. Graham coming out every other day saying that they will not be supporting Donald Trump, then I think that what they're trying to do is just to get a VP pick who will uh, try mm. to in those bad headlines right and I get I mean that's 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 the difficulty right is you have to decide as part of Donald Trump's team um, which one of those which one of those matters the most I feel like he has gotten more um, I feel like he's gotten much more positive press in the last several days than he had been getting leading up to our when we recorded our show last week you know we spent a lot of time last week talking about the fact that he was going to be meeting with Speaker Ryan. And everything I have heard and read has said that that meeting went very well, as many people expected it to, because as many people said, you know, it has to. They're not, those two people aren't allowed to come out of that meeting and not be in some kind of agreement. Because they've come out of it and they, I mean, they both, they were saying that, uh, you know, I'm just going to read. I'm going to read some quotes here. Um, Donald Trump says, "While we were honest about our few few differences, we recognize that there are also many important areas of common ground." Trump and Ryan said in a joint statement, "We will be having additional discussions, but remain confident there's a great opportunity to unify our party and win this fall, and we are totally committed to working together to achieve that goal." Um, he said. Ryan said that he was incredibly encouraged by this meeting, um, that their their teams are going to be meeting again. Donald Trump said he thought it was a great meeting and that he doesn't mind going through a little bit of a slow process. Um, Rince Priebus felt good about it. He said that the meeting was great. Um, I mean, so even if they're just put on one heck of a show, right, even if they don't really, even if they yelled at each other and hated each other in that meeting, but decided to just put on a show when they came out of it, he's still getting better press. And I would say that if he... Um, I would say that if if Donald Trump is smart, he needs to see that he is getting the right kind of press right now, focus on consolidating the party, focus on being unified and being strong and painting Hillary Clinton as being weak and the Democratic Party as being contentious and don't worry about a VP pick yet. I mean, do it Do it even, do it the day after the last primary. What is it? June 7th is the California and all those primaries. I mean, do it on June 8th. Do it the, do it the next day. But just wait until all of, that, all of that is done. That's just my strategic opinion, I guess you could say. Right. And uh, the 
well, you said maybe they're putting on one heck of a show. And when I was reading through those reports about Paul Ryan's statements, Donald Trump's statements, Rince Priebus' statements, the moment that I was thinking of is I, rem- I was re- remembering back to the West Wing when uh, President Bartlett has... Oh, my gosh. Uh, yes. Uh, or whatever, come to his office. Who was that? No, Boys? he has... No, it's when he... You're thinking of when he brings uh, Vinick in season six. Vinick. Yeah, because yeah. Vinnick, you know, Barlett's the Democratic president, and Vinnick was the Republican nominee, and so Vinnick was the de facto leader of the party. And I can't remember what the issue was, but they walked in there and they did the business in like sixty seconds, and then they ate ice cream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like these shows that candidates have to do to. Uh, no, no, no. I was thinking of the time when the Democratic battle was getting so intense that Matt Santo, he, he, they did that photo op with both of the Democratic oh, candidates in the room that part. with Jed yes. Barlett to show unity, even though there was like no unity or agreement mm-hmm. whatsoever, to try and make sure that the Democratic base was assured yes. and that the, the party still looked like it had a strong front. So a lot of my analysis, I will be fair, of these political <laughs> campaigns and strategy comes from me watching... Uh, Josh Lineman and uh, Toby Ziegler and these people talk about it on the West. Well, I can, see, I can think of no better helpful. source. <laughs> I can think of no better. <laughs> right. So, I can see that happening. I just want to say, to clarify for everybody, that the party of Lincoln has become the party of Trump. Right. And the media... I think is going to do everything it can to paint this as a close race and the Republican Party is going to do acrobatics and I'm actually now uh, ascribing to the theory that the reason a lot of these Republicans are uh, feigning reluctance here at the beginning is so that as they slowly warm up to Trump they can actually be actively campaigning for him by October um, without saying feeling like they've morally compromised themselves and if he does win and he's a disaster they can say look how reluctant Mm -hmm. I was even though I foresee everybody actually trying to campaign strong for Donald Trump even though he has got to be one of the most unprepared uh, amoral Mm. stupid (laughs) people (laughs) ever run for this office and yes do I think Hillary Clinton is terrible obviously there are even some issues where I agree with Trump against Hillary Clinton such as the issue of trade but not well not sort of I don't really know what Trump's stance is but I do agree with Trump that the United States gets often ripped off by fair trade um, yeah it, it doesn't play smart enough I do not believe that we should put a tariff of 40% on Chinese goods, nor do I believe that we should start making Japan and South Korea pay tribute for our military defense. That's a good idea. Let's just start uh, making Japan and South Korea warm up to China a little bit. That sounds like an amazing foreign policy strategy. But if you just want to look at the incompetence of this man... Uh, there was a professor that I had at Oxford. His name was Stan Rosenberg. And he's posting these articles that are being published in The Guardian and in other British newspapers and European newspapers. And one of his points is, please, America, do not elect a president who holds personal grudges. 
Mm-hmm. Because if you elect a guy who does that, he's not going to get along with anybody. So, because yeah. Donald Trump has already threatened the United Kingdom this week. Did you read about these things? This was bonkers. So, Don- David it. Cameron. Yeah, I heard something about David that. Cameron a few weeks ago uh, made the statement that Donald Trump's desire to ban Muslims is ignorant, it is stupid, and it is inhuman. I agree. It, it's all of those things. And then Donald Trump came back and said, challenged. David Cameron to an IQ test, which was mm-hmm. just uh, which is just and obviously <laughs> no, no, no. He did. He didn't come back with an IQ test to David Cameron. He said that if he becomes president, he'll remember what David Cameron said, as if oh. he's going to hold a grudge against the United Kingdom through David Cameron. And then there was just recently the newly elected first Muslim mayor of a major Western capital city. Uh, was elected as mayor of London, and Donald mm-hmm. Trump announced that he would make an exception on his Muslim ban for the new London mayor, who said that he is not interested in visiting a bigot like Donald Trump. <laughs> so Donald Trump retorted and said that Donald Trump is uh, obviously is stupid for believing that all Muslims are bad and he's ignorant about Islam. And that's when Donald Trump challenged the mayor of London to an IQ test. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is, so Donald Trump is already, before becoming president, isolating us from our closest ally and from an ally that sometimes abides by, stands by the United States too willingly and that we lead them into mistake. (laughs) So if we're already isolating this country, we are in for a very bad show for the next Mm -hmm. four years of Donald Trump's elected president. Too many people say to me, we need a man who's going to stand up for America. You know what? America sort of doesn't need too much standing up for we, we, we talk about how China is uh, becoming more aggressive and trying to take over the Chinese Sea. Well, the United States has kind of claimed the entire Pacific Ocean as our pod. Yeah. We are trying yeah. to defend American influence in the Chinese Sea. Talk about imperial ambition. That's mm-hmm. not just China. It's not just Russia. We've got to start realizing that we are not God's agents of justice. God does not subcontract God, his own justice to the U.S. Army. We are nation state. We simply, I believe, have a moral and ethical responsibility to hold ourselves to a higher ethical standard than China and Russia yes. because of the gift of liberty and democracy that has been given to us by the United States Constitution to have these discourses, mm-hmm. to being a nation that was once held by a colonial power, but no, as of now, we are still practicing every day American imperialism on an increasingly massive scale. Mm. And that's why America feels threatened, is that our maybe the United States can't run the show anymore, and maybe right. that's okay. Yeah, maybe it is okay, because we're trying to get to a place where the world is working together more, and we're all working together, and that we don't have to be the ones who run everything. Now, this takes, let me bring us back to our original question. In mind of all of this, in mind of this perception that Donald Trump has internationally, in mind of all of these things that Donald Trump has said and done, and the reasons that people are voting for him, in my opinion, and again, this is my opinion, I'm not doing speculation based upon information I've received, right? I think that Donald Trump has to select someone that has understanding and knowledge of foreign affairs. Now, that is not because he has... That's not because he's not going to have people in the administration who understand foreign affairs. 
you obviously will, right? I mean, you you have people who, if if nothing else, you have carryovers. People he doesn't even hire himself. Carryovers exist, but I think that he needs someone, and this also speaks to whoever he picks as his secretary of state. He needs a solid, he needs solid individuals in these positions who can make sure that our relationships with other countries are... Because, first of all, I have a lot of issues with the way Obama has handled diplomacy, and I'm very concerned about a number of strategic relationships with other nations in this world already. And so we need we really need people for this next term who know what they're doing and can make sure that we're working the right way with these other countries. Right. And fortunately, uh, one of the two names that have been floated the most... For Donald Trump's vice president meets all the qualifications that you just laid out. Yeah. Dr. Ben Carson. Dr. Ben <laughs> Carson. <laughs> I do. That is one of the two names that has been thrown out there who I do not see at all yeah. as being a viable pick, not only because he wouldn't he, he wouldn't add to the base at all. He's a conservative evangelical Tea Party outsider. Right. Um, so he's not going to expand the base at all. Exactly. Number two, he has no idea what he's doing. Ben Carson, from the day he started campaigning, clearly has no idea what he's doing. He may be good in the operating room. I don't know if he accidentally took some kind of medicine that made him forget what his actual job was and what he was great at. But he has since continued to make fumble after fumble on the campaign trail, has been saying nothing that actually has bearing on reality. Even when he makes assertions about foreign policy, usually has no bearing on reality. So no, Ben Carson is not the person that he should choose. The other name that has been floated a lot lately is... Well, actually, Sarah Palin was floated around quite a bit last week. Yeah. But thank goodness Sarah Palin stepped forward to state that she believes that she is unqualified for the job. One of the few statements that she has made that is accurate um, for quite some time. Um, but another person who has stepped forward, uh, is, people were talking a lot about Newt Gingrich. Now, whereas yeah. Newt Gingrich may be experienced and may be able to speak intelligently on a lot of these issues, I really don't see a Trump Gingrich ticket being a winning ticket. Gingrich doesn't no. get you independence and moderates. He doesn't really galvanize your base, right? He's not here's, the most I don't know what happens. Here's here's the one question I have about whether or not Gingrich might be a good selection. Now I don't think he's a great candidate, but as a vice president, would Newt Gingrich I you know, we've had a lot of turnover since Newt Gingrich was speaker. I mean, when was his last year as speaker? 96? I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time, right? 20 years since he, was, since he was the most powerful Republican in the world. But the, the, the question is, does Donald, if Donald Trump is thinking about Gingrich, if that's a real option, is he thinking that Gingrich will help him manage Congress well? Right, because I can't imagine Gingrich is one who is who he would be a terrible do nothing VP. That's one thing you can say about Newt Gingrich. He likes to work, right, and and he right. likes to he likes to be important and to have influence, and that that's just the reality. So, would he be willing, or would he would would Donald Trump be looking at Newt Gingrich and saying? This is the guy who I know can help me control Congress once I'm in office. 
Right. No, I think that's why he's thinking of Donald with Newt Gingrich. But I don't know if he's thinking that so much as his advisors are thinking that. I don't mm. think Donald Trump actually thinks that he's going to have any trouble managing Congress. That's I don't a think really Donald Trump point. thinks that he's going to have that's much a... of a problem managing foreign policy. I think there are I people just... around him who are trying to find a way to surround him with people who can help guide him through the complicated situations that he's going to encounter when he becomes president. Former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates recently did an interview this past week. And Robert Gates is a man who has served under, I think it's five U.S. presidents, or six U.S. Oh, presidents. I mean, a lot, and yeah. Republican and Democrats, and he served as Secretary of Defense under George W. Bush and under President Barack Obama. G Secretary Robert Gates has met with all of these men, all these presidents, five or six presidents. He's advised them, he's worked mm -hmm. with them, and he has already met with and had conversations with Donald Trump. And the one thing that scares him most about Donald Trump Secretary Gates said, was that all these other presidents in the past have had one thing in common, if nothing else. All of them believed to their core that they did not have all the answers. Mm. All of them believed that they needed the help of other people and were willing to listen, even if they knew that they would probably fundamentally disagree with you at the end. He said that all of these presidents were willing to listen and yes. to engage your ideas and believe that they did not necessarily have the answer. Donald Trump, Secretary Gates said, does not have the ability to listen to other people. He does not believe that he does not have the answer to everything. He thinks that he does, which is far more dangerous in a president, according to Robert Gates. And I would be willing to agree with oh, him. He's one of the I greatest pragmatists in American politics. Right. So I, he's... He's, he knows that even Hillary knows she does not have all the answers. That's why she surrounds herself with all these people. Yes. And I think it's important in the office of the president. Yes, I think that if you are president, there's going to be a certain amount of hubris that is invested with that. But there's got to be some kind of reality check of one's own fallibility. And if Trump really – there's no indication that he believes in his own fallibility at all. Right. Yeah, when when I said that he may be thinking Newt Gingrich could help him in Congress, I was really making an assumption of humility there, wasn't I? <laughs> you were. You're making an assumption that Donald Trump might believe that he couldn't do something by himself. <laughs> why? I mean, you know, with Don, in Donald Trump's administration, why even have a cabinet, right? I mean, surely he's not even planning on having one of those because he doesn't need one. It's not going to be a cabinet meeting. They're going to get together, and Trump is going to hold court and deliver commands to the different departments that each of those secretaries, their job while they are at the head of their various cabinet positions is going to be the same position that Thomas More had when King Henry VIII was ruling like a tyrant in England. And that is mitigating the damage, doing your best to mitigate the, reper the evil repercussions that that could carry to the Commonwealth. Because usually, maintain, 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 right, exactly. You're going to have, for the first time in a long time, if Donald Trump becomes president. I'm going to be putting my hope in the American bureaucracy. Which is not something that I have ever said before. I'm going to be hoping that the bureaucracy causes him so much trouble and so much paperwork and so much chaos that that will be the great stumbling block of the Trump presidency. Unfortunately, our bureaucracy is, well, for this brief moment, unfortunately, our bureaucracy is not as robust as somewhere like India or 
uh, France, where you literally can't do anything without the bureaucracy behind mm-hmm. you. But uh, well, here's generally to- it's a good thing. But <laughs> here's to hoping <laughs> that for here's for once hope. in my life, I I too will maybe hope that the bureaucracy. I just want to write down this date. May what is today? May sixteenth. Yes. I put my hope in the competency of American bureaucrats. Someday, <laughs> my, you, you need to write that if you if you keep official journals or notes or something, Jared. Someday, someone's going to do an exhibit on you after you're dead with your writings and your teachings, and we we need to have you know I won't be around to make sure it happened. We'll both be dead, but that's going to be a major display point in this exhibit on Dr. Ingalls. That you right. that on this one day you put your hope in the American bureaucracy. So you need to make, <laughs> you need, was, you need yeah. to make sure that's in a prominent place so that er, er, they'll be able to find it in the future. Um, we are we're pretty much we're pretty much out of our time to talk about this. Um, so do you have any final thoughts? My only final thought is the things to keep in mind this coming week are uh, this tonight, no, tomorrow night, Kentucky and Oregon are voting. Mm -hmm. So everyone keep your eye on that. Bernie Sanders and Hillary are going against each other. And as far as Donald Trump goes, keep your eye out on the tax, him releasing his taxes. This is, no one has ever waited this late. He keeps claiming it's the audit. And there are some people who actually think that once these tax returns are made, his taxes are released that this might actually be his kryptonite if it truly, these are actual, instead of talking heads saying that Donald Trump is something or something not, these are actually be numbers that we can yeah. read into. So this, this could actually do damage. Yeah, that's, that's a good note. Yeah, that's, I don't, I was going to mention Kentucky and Oregon. So I have no other final thoughts. As always, to everyone listening, we thank you for listening. We thank you for tuning in week after week. Uh, We hope that you will leave us a review on iTunes so that we can know how we're doing and follow us on Twitter so you can join in the conversation with us at Ingalls Wheat 2016. Our show is produced by Gwendolyn Wheat and it is hosted on SoundCloud. And we look forward to uh, doing this again with you next week as we review the results in Kentucky and Oregon and, and keep on thinking about everything that's just happening. So thanks again, as always, for listening. This is Caleb Wheat. And this is Jared Ingalls. And this is Ingalls Wheat 2016.